This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer for a beautiful Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox and in just a few moments we'll welcome Sherry McMillan back to our show with a discussion on estate planning and how to protect and preserve that which you've spent a lifetime building up. Next hour, the world-class dentist from BC Perio will return with more updates from the increasingly high-tech field of dentistry. But first, here are some of the week's top consumer stories. And a new report suggests that more than half Half of us Canadians can't easily follow Canada's new fruit and veggie-heavy official food guide. So to find out why, researchers at Dalhousie University in, in Nova Scotia and the University of Guelph in Ontario took a survey and found more than 52% of us said we face barriers in adopting the recommendations of the food guide released just a while ago. More than a quarter of us found affordability a major barrier, and others say taste preferences or lack Lack of free time or dietary restrictions are impediments. The survey also showed most people rely on nutrition advice from friends, family, social media, and cookbooks before Canada's food guide, even though three-quarters of us know about the new food guide. Add in the fact that fruits and vegetable costs are now increasing faster than meats in some cases, and it becomes easier to uncover why so many Canadian consumers are taking a pass on the recommendation. An improved economy is expected to give the Trudeau government some more fiscal room than anticipated in this coming Tuesday's pre-election budget, but a wobbly finish to 2018's economy means conditions could change and look much different by the time the October vote rolls around. Last week, we told you the Bank of Canada predicted a weaker economic performance through the first half of this year compared to its previous forecast, one of the reasons it kept interest rates steady. Still, the economy posted solid numbers for much of last year, and employment has remained particularly strong. With some extra money, hints of tougher times ahead, and an election just months away, the government is expected to use up all that space based on the argument the economy will need stimulation. In particular, watch for changes in housing and mortgage rules as the Trudeau government attempts to continue its appeal to millennials. And remember, any and all new money announced will be borrowed money. Toyota is going to the moon. Toyota revealed plans for a moon rover in collaboration with the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, on Tuesday. Toyota and JAXA announced their hopes for a 2029 moon landing this week. And here's the quote. Manned, pressurized rovers will be an important element supporting human lunar exploration which we envision will take place in the 2030s. We're aiming at launching such a rover into space at 2029. The proposed rover would be about the size of two microbuses, about almost 20 feet or 6 meters long, and the vehicle uses Toyota's fuel cell vehicle technologies and would have a cruising range of more than 6,000 miles on the surface of the moon, despite obviously limited amounts of fuel that can be brought there. The automaker's fuel cells use clean power generation methods and only emit water. 
That's 10 years away. We'll keep you posted. And one more car story for you today. The next James Bond film, the working title of which so far is Shatterhand, will see 007 with Daniel Craig in his last turn in the role, driving an electric version of his usual brand of car, an Aston Martin. This model will be the Rapide E, an all-battery-powered vehicle that will go on sale next year and which it represent, replaces the engine and gas tank with zero emissions drivetrain components and sends 600 horsepower to the rear wheels through twin electric motors. When they go on sale next year, 155 of them will be offered at 300 grand U.S. Bond's version, of course, will be equipped with all those fun gadgets the Q Branch people are so famous for. The 25th Bond film with new electric Aston Martin is scheduled to be released April of next year. Those are some of the top consumer stories of the week we're keeping an eye on. We'll have some more for you later in the show. Coming right up after a quick break, Sherry McMillan from McMillan Estate Planning with more on, a, well, a new Vancouver seminar coming up as well. This is Vancouver Consumer on NW. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer this Saturday afternoon on CKNW. I'm Sterling Fox, and it's a pleasure to welcome back Sherry McMillan, CEO of McMillan Estate Planning, to the program. Sherry, welcome back. It's nice to have you with us again. Thank you, Sterling. You're going to do another seminar here in a couple of weeks on April the 4th. We'll get to more details about that going along. But I'm going back to the last chat we had last month on the program. And one of the questions I asked you was, and I think most people would want to know, in terms of estate planning, what sort of individual or group of people should be most aware of the need for estate planning in their lives. And the first group you talked to me about was business owners. Without even hesitating a second, you said business owners. Those are the people that we need, we deal with the most. And those are the people who need to be most aware of estate planning because of some kind of transfer of wealth inevitable with owning a business. Can you elaborate on that, please? Well, certainly. I mean, it's not a secret that business owners have different challenges to contend with in their estate because they're relying upon the business they've created often and most often for their retirement income stream. And so, you know, they often put all their eggs in that basket. And if they do that, we're going to have to make sure that we're very protective about how the business is going to be utilized. So either it's going to be sold, that's one of the options, and about 70% of our businesses are sold. Okay. So that's good to know. And then another 15% end up uh, transferring to the next generation. So we have different planning techniques for that group. And then about 15% of businesses are actually dissolved, and then they are just a holding company with wealth for the generations to come and for retirement. So we have these different angles about how we would contend with an estate. But our net worths in Canada are comprised of family business. If you were to look at the net worth of Canada, most of it is situated in family business. And so when we think of it from that point of view, they have real challenges on how they're going to design their estate. But there's also real opportunities too. And so that's the beautiful part about being proactive. They say, Sterling, it takes us about 15 years to transfer the wisdom that the business owners have to the key employees or the next generation. So it's not done in 10 minutes. This is not a quick, quick solution. But forward thinking. So I see a lot of business owners in their 40s and 50s designing so they can exit at 60. Now, 
They're not waiting until they're 60 to design. They're doing it now as we go. Oh, that goes back to that old, remember that London life insurance campaign back in the 80s that we all bought into, Freedom 55. We were all going to punch our tickets at 55 and hit the golf course and the beaches of Hawaii. And that and life was, was going to be just swell beyond that. Well, you know, a lot, lot, lot of people in 2018 walking away with a bucket load of cash and, and a, a wonderful estate plan at age 55. A lot of people at 75, some of them still working part time. That's by design as much as by necessity. But but let's talk about the 70% of business owners that you just mentioned moments ago are going to sell their business rather than pass it along to the kids, uh, you know, so-and-so and son, uh, or uh, have it dissolve. What, are the, what sort of strategies are involved with the bulk of business owners who are, in fact, going to sell at the appropriate moment? So there are... A good number of ideas that I share with business owners as choices to, you know, optimize the value that they've put into the business. So the first one to know is in Canada, we have a very special technique uh, called an estate freeze. And just explain what that is in English. Let's say I have a business worth a million dollars in the moment, but I forecast that it's going to be worth five million because of what I'm up to. And I'm working away at it. Mm -hmm. So rather than waiting until we die and paying the tax on the full $5 million, which could cripple the business if you have to pay tax on all of that, is what we can do is something called an estate freeze. We can report to Canada Revenue Agency today that your business is worth $1 million. And in your estate, what we've done is we've taken the extra $4 million of growth and we've pushed it down to the next generation for them to pay tax on when they one day inevitably sell. And so what that does is instead of your tax burden uh, being five times as high, it's actually only one times. And so that can make a dramatic difference in that business succeeding another generation. And so this technique is called an estate freeze. And I always think the best time to do an estate freeze is when your business is devalued by the economic situation of the country. Can I interrupt for, with just a, with, a, with a silly question for for just absolutely. a second? Because there's something I've missed something. I've clearly missed something because if you in, uh, go with this plan and you reduce the amount of tax payable in, in, in this round and defer it uh, to the next generation, are you doing them a disservice by handicapping them with an enormous tax burden? Before before they even get a chance to go into business? Well, that's the beautiful part about an estate freeze transaction is, and let's just go back to that example so you can see it in a numerical way. Okay. So if I have a business worth a million today, most likely I'm going to owe $250,000 of tax on that value if that's growth of the business. But if I have a business worth $5 million, I'm going to owe a million and $250,000. So... If I've done the estate freeze and I die as, let's say, the father of the business, I have to give the government 250000 But I don't have to give them that extra million yet. Yes, the company does owe it at some point, but if I can keep that million dollars in my family for another generation, that million dollars can become $5 million. Ah, so they don't have to pay it the second they take over the business. It becomes payable at a certain point. But in the meantime, the money continues to make more money. Inside the family unit. So 
the opportunity cost on that is phenomenal and it can preserve the business. So if we have to strip out of a $5 million business, one and a quarter million dollars, it cripples the business often. But if we only have to strip out of the business 250000 and they can keep the business whole, then we can succeed making the business maybe not worth $5 million, but $10 million, and then paying the tax of $1 million is no big deal. And so this is why we have this wonderful technique called a state freeze. And if you are a family that did an estate freeze when the markets were doing better and when the economy was better, there's also a, another funny name for it, Sterling, but we can do what's called as an estate thaw. So oh, you froze. We had a freeze and now we're going to have a thaw. Tell us what the but, thaw is. Sure. So let's say you froze when the business was worth $5 million okay. and now it's only worth $3 million. We can thaw the freeze and reevaluate at $3 million and reduce your estate tax today. So, you know, regardless of where the economy is, you can see that this technique can be very helpful to a family business in order to protect it and conserve value for generations to come. So that's the first idea. The second idea is normally in our companies, uh, we often have a lot of trap value. And this is the issue that we were having with the government uh, this past couple of years here. Where they're talking about taxing us very heavily on our passive income in the business. Mm-hmm. Well, if we use a a special technique called the maximum tax range in Canada, we can relabel that capital that's inside our company. And when we pass on, it strips out of our company without paying any tax. And that can be such a dramatic impact to a company. Because if you can take millions of dollars out of the company and not pay tax, you yourselves have all this cash now that has been stripped out of the business to pay corporate tax if you have any due, but also gives operating capital to the business. And this and is so, this is all trust. Is this trust fund law? Is that how the sort of the umbrella heading that all falls under, Sherry? That's right. And so you can see that as families have created affluence, that the tools of trust um, become very valid and very important to designing the estate appropriately. And so I think. You know, we are in a really unique position in the economy right now. There's an opportunity because we've been devalued the last couple of years in Canada with the oil prices and so forth. Well, it's also an opportunity, though. The silver lining is it's also an opportunity to do your estate planning now and solidify with Canada Agency the lowest taxable event in your estate we possibly can. Now, the great part is, Sterling, you don't owe that tax today if you do the transaction today. You still don't owe it until you pass on. So... Why wouldn't we freeze it at a low value? It just makes sense. Interesting stuff. Now, would the typical uh, tax accountant hired by a business to do the books and file the paperwork with the government every year on time, would that individual be aware of these uh, possibilities that exist in trust law? Or is that individual mostly concerned, appropriately, with getting the facts and figures right and filing them on time? Uh, it, it, you do need to step beyond the accountant looking after the books of the business for a lot of this stuff, don't you? We certainly do. And the reason for that is we actually view accounting as uh, two different specialties. So we have in Canada, I would say the mass of our accountants in Canada are what we would consider compliance accounting, meaning that they're doing work based on the history. What has already happened, we're reporting it to Canada Revenue Agency and we're contending with that. Mm -hmm. A much, much smaller group would be forward-thinking accountants, and we don't call them 
uh, compliance, we call them strategists or tax accountants. And they're a group that specialize in forward thinking and planning, not historical thinking. And generally, the two don't mix. So either you're working with a compliance accountant, or if you're working with a strategic accountant, they're not usually doing compliance. So you actually need both in your situation. Um, everyone needs compliance, of course. Of course. But we also need the strategist that's forward thinking about how can we mitigate estate tax and annual tax in the companies so that we keep the value in the company to grow the company further. So a person who has the designation TEP, Trust and Estate Practitioner, is that what you're looking for when it gets beyond the compliance, everything's being done, revenue agency's happy, Victoria's happy, now it's about this business future I've got going on. Do I look for a TEP to fill in some of those gaps? Certainly you would because the TEP is somebody that's whole focus is strategic and forward thinking. It's not historical. What we're trying to do is each calendar year mitigate the tax that you would have to pay, compound your estate, and then minimize the estate tax that we would have to contend with one day when we transfer. And so it's a very different pair of glasses that these folks are wearing in comparison to compliance law and compliance accounting. They're looking at it from a different angle entirely. And so we need both in our lives, but ultimately when we start to create an estate of this caliber, we can't actually expect our compliance accountants to take this role on or our lawyers that are compliance. It's unfair because this is a specialty and there's a lot of education that goes along with it to make sure your parties are fully informed with each rule and jurisdiction and how that will impact the whole picture. And I know at McDonald Estate Planning, for example, uh, you have TEPs uh, in, the, in the person of yourself, among others on board. But you also, in the firm, have tax lawyers, tax accountants, financial planners. You have the whole gamut of experts uh, available to your clients. And we certainly do. And we even have psychologists. And you're probably not surprised by that. But when you're working with family and dynamics, there's so many facets to give contemplation to. So, you know, I I group things into two categories, what we call the soft issues and the hard issues. And so often, you know, our psychologist often will work with the soft issues in the family. If this child has addiction, how do we build a recovery trust? Sure. Um, if there's going to be a divorce in the family, how do we protect the child's inheritance from that divorce? These are the softer things that we face as families. And then, of course, we do need our tax lawyers and tax accountants to look at, okay, now you have a family business and you want your son to join you. How do we do that but not risk the family business because you need it for retirement to their spouse, the child's spouse? We, If they go through a divorce and we've given the child shares, we have a big problem. So we don't do that. We use a trust instead. And then that way, if the child does go through a divorce, you know, we're not risking our retirement to the next generation. Absolutely. So there's all these types of techniques that we can optimize to make sure we're fully protected and safeguarded. Our guest is Sherry McMillan, the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning, returning to Vancouver on April 4th for another seminar. This one at 7 o'clock in the evening again, and again the same venue at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel here in Vancouver. Sherry will be conducting the seminar and then we'll take your questions afterwards. All the details on the website, macmillanestate.com. And we're back with more with Sherry McMillan after the news.
Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer here on CKNW this Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined by Sherry McMillan, the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning, who's uh, got another seminar in the works. It's coming up in Vancouver on April 4th, not too long from now. April 4th at 7 o'clock in the evening at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel in downtown Vancouver. 7 o'clock on April 4th. Sherry McMillan will be here and will be presenting the seminar. Sherry, I I know I ask you this question frequently, but I'm always curious. When I do a a presentation in front of a group of people, you you go and you have your PowerPoints and your your speech and you've got these uh, important messages that you want to impart. And then you say, okay, that's my bit. Now, let's have some questions. And uh, that's, for me, always my most fun because people ask me stuff that I don't expect them to. What do people want to know when they come to April 4th seminar down there at the Marriott Pinnacle? What do you expect people are going to ask you when you say, okay, over to you, it's your turn? Well, one of the prominent questions that we're receiving in our community now in Canada often is, uh, what about my U.S. property and snowboarding? How does that impact my estate? Uh Aha. And it's a common issue today because many of us have become affluent, and if we have, we often have another property. So it's very, very common that many of our clients have properties in the United States or business interests down there. Sure. And, you know, they're smart because they're escaping the cold weather and having some sunshine and vitamin D through the winter months. But there are certainly some complications that families that have U.S. assets have to give consideration to because U.S. estates are different than Canadian estates because, as we all know, they've had U.S. estate tax for a very long time. Now, recently under the Trump administration, the Trump administration increased the exemption for U.S. citizens to $11 million per person. So at first glance, that looks really fantastic to a Canadian having U.S. assets. But we're not U.S. citizens, are we? No, Uh and that is the trick. We don't get that exemption in the same way a U.S. person does. So let's say I buy, um, this is very common, uh, out of Vancouver, we buy a property down in California or Phoenix, and you know we, we winter there, which is quite normal. Well, there's a couple of real serious issues with that that we have to contemplate. The first thing to know is when we buy a U.S. property, it comprises a portion of our U.S. estate. So we now have U.S. estate tax simply because we own a U.S. asset. And that's also true of any stocks we also own, for example. So, you know, lots of times our investment council don't realize that by adding U.S. value, they're creating a U.S. estate for the purposes of estate tax in the United States. They're also creating probate in the United States based on the jurisdiction you're residing in. Uh, sorry, can I interrupt for, for, for just a second? I just want to understand this the, the, the business about holding. If you hold uh, American stock assets, uh, you that, that's considered to be part of your uh, United States estate. However, if you hold U.S. assets inside a Canadian portfolio, you're not subject to the same U.S. taxation issues, are you? It depends how you hold it. And Uh so there's a lot of myth in the community. So, you know, ultimately what we want to be sure of is is the IRS doesn't recognize it as a U.S. portfolio and they call it a look-through. And there are ways in which we can have U.S. assets, but we have to do it very carefully in Canada so that the IRS doesn't 
grab tax from us as a Canadian person holding U.S. assets? So generally speaking, the answer is if you own U.S. stock directly and you own it even in an RSP, which is confusing, uh, you have a U.S. estate. And so you've got to contend with probate in that jurisdiction as well as you have uh, potential U.S. estate tax to contend with, which is problematic because you weren't planning on that. Because Canada doesn't have U.S. estate tax, there's no offsetting credit in an estate. And so you're double paying. You're paying your Canadian tax and you're paying your U.S. tax. Right, of course. And they're very Manchurian in how they tax us. And the reason for that, Sterling, is they tax us on the value of our estate in the United States, not on its growth. Whereas in Canada, we're only taxed on growth. So let's say you buy a $5 million cottage in California, because they cost that much nowadays, um, and you have no appreciation. You'll be shocked to know that you still have to pay tax on $5 million as if it was appreciation in the United States. And so you can see the dilemma here for families. So one of the solutions we utilize is a trust to hold U.S. assets so that we don't have a U.S. estate. That's one of our solutions. But I want to mention one more real serious um, issue around owning U.S. assets. It's generally if we own U.S. assets, we own them because we want to use them. Sure. So the point is we go there and we spend the winters there. So... We always refer to this as the snowbird rule, the rule that everybody kind of leans on and says, I'm protected. So the rule says that you cannot be resident in the United States for more than 183 days at first instance. So you'd look at that and think, oh, that means six months, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't. It's a formula. And what they do is they take 100% of last year's days that you've been in the United States, add it to the year before that, by taking a third of those days and the year before that, a sixth of those days and add it all together to see if you're at 183 days. So, And a lot if, of Canadians unwittingly thinking that they're just taking this year's numbers and that's all that counts, get caught up in some kind of, uh, well, bureaucratic tangle, right? Right. And now the problem is this. If you're considered... U.S. for the purposes of U.S. estate tax because your residency is considered the U.S., then your Canadian worldwide estate is also exposed to the U.S. taxation. So just repeating that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you repeat that, sure? That, yeah, sure. do that one again. That's, that's kind of profound stuff, you know. Yes. So let's say you spend too much time in the United States, meaning you're not in the white zone, you're in the gray zone or the black zone and you're offside. Mm -hmm. Then as a Canadian, you are still exposed to U.S. estate tax on your entire worldwide estate, which includes your Canadian assets. My goodness. And of course, uh, a lot of us w might be caught offside given the numbers and our misinterpretation of those numbers in the first place. That's right. And so... I'm not the best travel agent in the world, I do share, but I'm also very protective of our families and the estates they're creating. So we, we have to be is very cognizant of the rules and follow them properly. And so U.S. is a very tricky arena. And right now under the legislation with Trump passing the high threshold, it sounds great. But for high, high net worth families, we have a family right now in Vancouver that their net worth is over, you know, half a billion Eleven million is nothing in relativity to their estate. Okay, but if they're caught offside in the number of days, can you imagine them giving up forty percent of that estate and then still having to pay Canadian tax on top of it? 
And when we've done math on this, Sterling, sometimes families that have these U.S. issues are ending up paying 68% of their estate to taxations between Canada and the U.S. And simply because they didn't have the foresight or perhaps even the awareness that by reorganizing these possessions through a trust, uh, one could bypass quite legitimately and quite legally a lot of these tax implications. And that's exactly right. So when you have U.S. issues in your affairs, you can no longer use a will to solve your problems. A will does nothing. And, you know, so here are the main ways that you can get caught out with U.S. assets. The first one is if your spouse is U.S. or you're U.S. and you live in Canada, we have to deal with your estate appropriately. In addition, another way you can get caught out is, as I say, spending more than, let's say, four months a year. There are 121 days each calendar year. The next one is owning lots of assets in the United States can catch you out. And the last one that's really common, actually, is that our children relocate there and have children. And so all of a sudden, they are a U.S. citizen for the purposes of estate tax. And so you can see, they actually say over 15% of us Canadians have U.S. issues in our estate. And you can see how that can happen so easily. And, you know, it's, it's funny, I, I suppose, that, that many of us would get caught up simply on, on a misunderstanding of the number formula the American government uses for taxation purposes. And this is not uh, this is not happening lightly because, of course, the one thing that most of us care about when we check out for a month or two and snowbird for wherever uh, is we want to make sure that we're always under the number so we get we, we safeguard our Canadian Medicare back home and we, we so we're, we're aware of that number of days minimum. We always try and stay maybe even a few extra days short of that so we safeguard the Medicare. But that represents a minor problem compared to some of these other issues that you're talking about. That's right. And the onus will be on us to prove that. So if you find, and I hope I haven't terrified anybody in the moment, but if you're offside, you can get back onside because we have a rolling three-year calendar. So what we'd encourage families is let's start to get you back on side by limiting how much time you're spending. In addition, one of the other things that we want you to do is if you find yourself to be offside, there's a special form called 8840 that you can file with the IRS for self-reporting yourself that you're offside. And you may say, well, why would I self-report? But you need to. And the reason you need to is it's the only legal stance you can take that you're not an American. Right. If as if you filled the form out. So once you fill the form out, then get yourself back on side by the way in which you travel over the next few years. And then I would say cease filling out the 8840 because now you're back on side and we don't want to report you if we don't need to report you, obviously, into the United States. So these are some of the ways in which we can bring you back on side. In addition, um, another way we can bring you back on side is to use trust to hold recreational property you want to use for your family Mm -hmm. and that way it's not comprised as part of a u.s estate and that can be very helpful um, so that you're not paying inheritance tax when you transfer it and the reason i say that is the the difficulty between a spouse is because you're not an american when you transfer a u.s property to your spouse you owe inheritance tax on first passing not last on first passing, not last. In Canada, you don't pay tax till the uh, last spouse dies. I see. Oh, so it's the reverse. 
Yes. Oh, so we man. got a problem yeah. because you get a rollover in Canada, but you don't in the U.S. So if I own that $5 million property with my husband directly and use a will, I owe tax on his share, the $2.5 million, and yet I haven't sold it. So you can see why these are real important issues that we have to give contemplation to when we have the blessing of having enough affluence to have these kinds of assets. We need to put that little bit extra value in by planning properly around them so that we don't have any, you know, surprises <laughs> when this is our, you know, lifestyle that we're jeopardizing. Well, you know, it's almost a, a, a cottage industry, no pun intended, but there, there's a, a, of a, a, a certain group of accountants in Canada just dealing with Canadians who hold properties of every description, be they uh, stock assets or physical assets, a cottage, a, a property in the desert, whatever. There are people who, 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 who whole career is just managing Canadians uh, across border activities. And a lot of that you're suggesting could really be better managed inside a trust. Certainly. And specifically when we're transferring our wealth to, let's say, a Canadian or a U.S. spouse or a U.S. child, the solution is a trust. And the reason for that is we can transfer the value to a trust. The trust is not owned by our spouse or our children. And so we can actually generationally skip a whole level of tax by doing this kind of planning. So yes, we could pay the tax, but to me, before we do uh, tax planning to pay the tax, why don't we first consider if we can avoid the tax in the first well, place? Well, there you go. That's, that's a highly uh, improved uh, approach to it. Not, not a lot of people going to argue with that one. If we can save tax, let's have that conversation first, and then we'll talk about how much we actually have to pay when, we, when we've had the good part first. Sherry, I'm almost out of time. I need to take a couple of seconds to remind our listeners this afternoon about your next seminar, which is coming up on April 4th, not far away, April 4th, 7 o'clock in the evening, at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel in downtown Vancouver. Sherry McMillan will once again make the trek from Calgary to Vancouver and do the presentation herself with the the, the whole bit. And you have an opportunity not only to appreciate the information Sherry will have for you, but after the presentation, you'll have a chance to ask those questions that matter most to you. The date again is April 4th. It's at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel at 7 o'clock here in Vancouver. And all the details and much more information, including contacts, is available at Sherry's website, which is MacmillanEstate.com. Sherry, uh, it's been a pleasure having a, a bit shocking some of the information you have, especially this cross-border business. My gosh, it gets complicated fast. We do appreciate your calm and your patience in getting through it all with us again today. Have fun at the seminar. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, Sterling. And we're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Sherry McMillan for another very informative visit. In our next hour, the world-class dentist from BC Perio will be here with more from the increasingly high-tech world of dentistry. Time right now, though, for Duly Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, has a look at preserving BC salmon stocks. Thanks, Sterling. The federal and BC governments have announced a massive cash infusion meant to help restore wild salmon habitat. Over a five-year period, the federal government has pledged $100 million, while the B.C. government is promising $42.85 million over the same span. The money will go to the new British Columbia Salmon Restoration and Innovation Fund, which is open to proposals from indigenous groups, conservation groups, 
academic and research organizations, and commercial groups in the fishing industries. To be eligible, projects will need to focus on innovation, infrastructure improvements, or science partnerships. Here's Fisheries Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Canada is contributing $100 million over the next five years with a key focus on supporting projects directed at biodiversity and salmon habitat protection and restoration. Creation of the fund comes several months after Washington State Governor Jay Inslee announced his own $1.1 billion plan to protect orcas and restore salmon habitat. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thank you, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies. Before the news, the city of Burnaby expects construction to begin on its newest arena next month, or actually make that June. The South Burnaby Arena, which is just the temporary name, while they work on a a better one, will add two NHL-sized ice rinks with just over 400 seats to the Edmonds Town Center area. It'll also include a skate shop, concession, offices, two multi-purpose rooms, and a rooftop patio. The city of Burnaby expects construction to begin in June, and that's expected to take approximately two years, with the rinks opening in late summer 2021. This announcement came in a package released by Burnaby this week with an, in which an ambitious series of community improvements was also announced. And it's looking like the force may be with you as soon as this spring. Disneyland and Disney World Parks have announced their official Phase 1 Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Experience opening dates. And it's sooner than expected. Disneyland Park down in California will open ahead of schedule on May 31st, while Disney World in Florida opens at the end of summer on August 29th. The massive 14-acre Star Wars section of the Disney Park will be the largest single-themed land expansion ever, says Disney, and will have restaurants, rides, and other experiences to offer customers a truly immersive experience. Guests will be transported, and this is a quote, to live their own Star Wars adventures in Black Spire Outpost, a village on the remote planet of Batu. However, if you're planning to visit the park this summer to take in the new Star Wars area, you will be required to make a reservation. However, the good news is it's a no-cost reservation to access the Star Wars land during your visit. Phase 2 of this fully immersive land Star Wars called The Rise of the Resistance will be opening later this year. No winning tickets sold for the 25 plus million dollar jackpot in last night's Lotto Max draw. That means the draw for the next, uh, the jackpot rather, for the next draw next Friday, March 22nd, will be $36 million. Hmm, worth taking a flyer on for those who do. That is our first hour of Vancouver Consumer for a beautiful Saturday afternoon. We'll take a break for the three o'clock news. And when we return, Dr. Bobby Birdie will be here from BC Perio Dental Health and Implant Centers to take your calls and talk about all the the latest high-tech technologies and techniques in the world of dentistry. You're with Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.